1: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, Today's episode, uh, two segments, three guests. First up, we have a roundtable with Kavitha Davidson, a correspondent for HBO's Real Sports and obviously someone who's been on this podcast many times. And Jane McManus, the director of the Marist Center for Sports Communication, Deadspin Sports columnist, obviously longtime ESPN uh, writer and uh, an analyst uh, there, uh, Jane and I, obviously, uh, also know each other for many, many, many years. One of my uh, longtime friends and uh, just uh, one of the great people in the business. Um, we are talking about the uh, their biggest sports stories of 2022, what they think will be most impactful. And it may be a little bit of a change up from what you're used to. Athletes talking about mental health publicly and that continuing. We get into uh, what the, the, the sports gambling um, sort of rush has meant and the potential for corruption there. F1 ballooning in the US, women's sports finally uh, getting some of their financial due, Amazon becoming more of an NFL presence, leagues having to deal with China, uh, or leagues should be dealing with China much more. And so, um, and when I say dealing with China, dealing with the China question, basically. Uh, you know, uh, not speaking out more on uh, human rights uh, issues that are happening in that country. So really interesting discussion uh, between uh, Kavitha and Jane. They are followed by Jesse Eisinger, a senior editor and reporter at ProPublica. He uh, is a Pulitzer Prize winner for stories on questionable Wall Street practices that uh, helped make the financial crisis then the worst since the Great Depression. And uh, Jesse discusses his recent piece, um, on uh, real estate and oil tycoons who've avoided paying federal income taxes. That list includes Miami Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross. And then we get into just ultra wealthy sports owners um, being income tax avoiders, how one goes about that kind of reporting and how sports owners very often use their teams um, to, uh, to get corporate welfare. And, and sort of hold uh, cities and communities hostage. So, Jay McManus and Kavitha Davidson to start, Jesse Eisinger to finish, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Kavitha Davidson is a correspondent for HBO's Real Sports and has been on this podcast before, a longtime sports and business writer. Jay McManus is the director of the Maris Center for Sports Communication. And a Deadspin sports columnist. Uh, both of these two are friends, and they have worked together at ESPN. But what a really weird segue I just gave there. I'm not, sorry, guys. i should, usually better on in my interests. But anyway, Jane and Kavitha have been on this uh, podcast many times. Certainly, Kavitha. Has. She's part of my uh, the inner circle of uh, of the sports media roundtable. And I'm pleased to be joined by these two because this will serve as our um, our sort of end of the year episode, even though it's going to run um, a week before the end of the year, it's going to serve as sort of our end of the year episode as we look ahead to 2022. And let me sort of set this up for you. I asked Jane and Kavitha to give me like their top four or five stories um, or what they anticipate the biggest sports stories or sort of biggest things in sports will be in 2022. And it's less about like Tom Brady's going to throw 40 passes and more sort of like, here's something to think about for 2022. So Jane, I'm going to start with Kavitha. I'll I'll start with the, her number 1. She'll sort of explain why she picked that and then you will you can respond. That's how uh, that's how we'll do this. Sound good to both of you guys? Yeah. And welcome, I should yeah. say. Thank you for joining yeah. me on the Sports Media Podcast.
2: Thank you. Hi Jane. Hey Kavitha, how are you? <laughs> Good. How are you?
1: You guys should just continue that conversation yet off uh, (laughs) off camera. That was far more interesting. All right, Kavitha, I'm. I agree with you on this, and I think this is one of the most important sort of topics in sports today. Your number one was, and it's not necessarily in order, but your number one was mental health is going to continue to be a huge topic of conversation, and whether it's, um, you know, Simone Biles or DeMar DeRozan or sort of any, uh, we have just seen now athlete after athlete um, be Be public and front and center and say that, like, I might have to take time off to um, to get myself right. And mental health has become a really important conversation. And I think it's we're still far away from where we need to be. But, man, it's so healthy. It's so healthy compared to the 70s and 80s. When nobody talked about that, so why was that your number one? Why do you think that's going to continue to be big in 2022? I happen to agree with you, by the way.
2: I mean, well, first of all, if you just look at what we've seen in the last year, obviously the two major examples of this were Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles, right? And and we're talking about premier, you know, Grand Slams and the Olympics that they're pulling out of because of this and to prioritize their mental health. But then you also go down the road and you look. I mean, just last month we saw AJ Brown for the Tennessee Titans come out and talk about not only you know priority. His mental health, but being in a really dark place where he felt suicidal and and you know going going as far as that. Um, and so on the one hand, like you've seen this this I don't want to call it a trend because that sounds kind of gross to minimize these things that people are going through. But but you see people starting to be more empowered and emboldened to come out and talk about their own experiences with mental health and not be labeled as weak. And there's something about when an athlete who has like clearly been proven as being like the strongest person in her or his field um, physically comes out and talks about mental health issues where all of those old tropes about what, you know, psychiatry and mental health mean um, about whatever, like weakness of personality kind of just get thrown out the window because these are people who obviously have to be both physically and mentally strong to have achieved what they've achieved in their respective sports. And then I think it's also part of, just a trend when you put the mental health part of it aside of athletes prioritizing their health in general over over the sport or over their athletic careers. And we, we started to see this in football a few years ago when um, – You know, when, when athlete, when, when football players started to retire, you know, after a few years, you know, they made their money and then they were like, I want to still have all of my mental faculties with all of this research that's now coming out about CTE. But also I want to be able to putt a golf ball when I'm, when I'm retired. I want to still have cartilage in my knee. Like there are more important things to me than the sport I play. And that I think is the overarching theme in what we're seeing now, um, that has been distilled into people talking about their mental health being a priority. This was,
3: Gina, yeah, this well, I was going to say,
2: this was absolutely one of mine as well. Um, I
3: think, I think there's something very empowering in athletes coming forward and talking about their mental health. I think, um, you know, ultimately this could lead to more leverage for athletes generally when, you know, when it comes time to negotiate for different things, I think health and mental health, are going to be uh, easier concessions to get from management. There's been a real uh, reluctance, I think, to even, you know, look at the way that the NFL handled concussions, denial, denial, uh, and then reluctantly coming forward and admitting they were a thing, and then reluctantly putting a spotter up in the booth so that you know games could be stopped and this could become a priority. Um, so I really do, I, I think this is a real trend. And I'll tell you, um, it's filtering down because. I teach a sports culture and communication class at Marist, and about half of my uh, class this semester was was athletes. And uh, I found even, I I ask my students to speak a lot in class. I feel like this is a really, you know, students come into my class knowing a lot about sports and I want to hear what they have to contribute. Um, And I had a number of athletes, uh, football players, um, talk about their own mental health in the class setting openly talking about, you know, whether it was depression or anxiety. And I have to say, I was super glad to see that because, and they were, you know, it wasn't, they were embraced obviously by the class. It was, um, you know, it wasn't a um, scenario like I think it might've been if it were 10 years ago, right. Where, um, you know, maybe they w- would have gotten a different reception, but I, to see it filtering down like that as well, to me is really important.
1: You know, I, and the, the, um, the other thing too, and this is why I think kavitha's a um, it's a really interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting number one, and all of this obviously subjective is within the sort of the COVID pandemic world, Kavitha, that we're living in, mental health for all of us, obviously, is a struggle and a topic. And now compound that if you're a professional athlete. Um, in many cases, you're young, and certainly the global sports, you're traveling the world where, you know, not only is that a challenge, but now you got to deal with sort of, you know, different medical bodies. And like, what do I, you know, what's my COVID protocol in this country or not? I just saw Bianca um, uh, obviously, because I'm in Toronto, pull out of uh, the Australian Open. I think Serena did as well. You know, these are, and those decisions um, are are made probably now based on uh, COVID in addition to sort of everything else. So that's one of the things that I was thinking, and I certainly sort of agree with you. I just think that like, I think the mental impact of this pandemic um, is impacting all of us, and it absolutely has impacted athletes. I even remember Pascal Siakam talking about playing in the bubble and just how like of a of a kind of a head fuck that was for him, and it took him a long time to get out of it.
2: Yeah, I mean that's actually as soon as you said COVID. Um, Pascal Siakam and Paul George in the bubble last year are the yeah. first players that came to mind who before really anyone was properly talking about mental health, you know, they they were, it was after a loss. I remember Paul George and he just kind of looked despondent. And he was like, and, you know, someone, a sideline reporter asked him kind of the generic, you know, what happened out there tonight? And he was like, listen, man, my head wasn't in the game. Like, this is, this is hard. <laughs> like, this is really hard what we're all going through and what we're trying to do here in this bubble. Um, And then you talk about, uh, you know, the, Restrictions, I mean, obviously there's a lot of fraught things about the, the Beijing Olympics, but a lot of athletes on a very practical level are worried, especially hockey players, and you'll know this being in Toronto, are very worried about what happens if they test positive and then have to be stuck in uh China in, in China meant. for three weeks. Yep. Like that's that's yep. a real thing. Um yep. so I do think that uh I, I do think that the pandemic has highlighted a lot of these things. And I do and I think that it's also for just the general fan because we are all going through our own mental health struggles um going into the second year of this pandemic that maybe we're a little bit more receptive to talking about it and to hearing about it from other people
1: the um the sec the the, the, the Jane's number one is a major gambling scandal and that um you know that obviously sort of speaks to um sort of something bigger uh, which sure Jane uh, I think another one of hers was corruption of both college player, like sort of corruption for a college player for information to aid betters or database stuff. So this, this Jane, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this gets obviously into the legalization of sports gambling. It's becoming much more uh, universal in the United States. Maybe I shouldn't even say much more, like it is universal, like it sort of, it it exists. The only question is just how many states it will end up being legal in. And so um, gambling is now part of the uh, sports universe. It's now become a massive part of the sports media universe. Um, you know, who knows? Some of us could be working one day for some place that is a gambling house. I mean, if you decide to do that, that that also has content. Um, so why did you make that sort of, why did that come to mind first and foremost? Because it's one thing about the sort of the influx of sports betting to get larger. It's another thing to sort of make a prediction that We're going to have a gambling scandal, like something is going to be impacted because of this money.
3: Yeah, well, I think there are two areas in sports right now that are completely chaotic and sports betting is one. And we'll talk about the other one, which is NIL um, later. But I do think that we've done a lot talking about the potential money in sports betting. And, you know, it's foolish not to think about what flooding a system with money does um, and it creates opportunities for people who who want to corrupt the system or who want to gain from that system. And I think, you know, when you have a group of athletes who are unpaid in our college college athletes where there's plenty of gambling, you know, I just look at a scenario where let's say you have, you know, Alabama in the college final and you have a, you know, a group of betters approach a backup safety. And say, hey, you know, um, we don't need you to tell us everything or throw a game, but just, you know, did so and so play or what was happening in practice or just give us, you know, a little bit of a cue here or there. And then that gives them an advantage enough to, you know, place a group of bets um, and a higher chance to get to for them to pay off. And then, you know, you look at a at a you know somebody a low level player not going to play in the pros potentially like for fifty thousand dollars which would be an incredible investment for that player a cre- an incredible influx of cash and would be nothing nothing um in the betting industry and I just think there you know that's an invented scenario and I apologize to every defensive back. In Alabama, because I, I don't know you personally, and It's not a personal thing, um, but I just mean that I think there's a scenario where a low-level player on, who has information becomes valuable in that um, in that kind of scenario, and I and I think we'd be foolish to think that there's not opportunity for that, particularly when the NCAA has been just so completely ineffective in looking at anything proactively. Um, And you really, it's not in anybody's best interest. The broadcasters aren't looking at it proactively, certainly not the casinos. Um, The accountability for gambling in this country is is piecemeal. It's at the league level, the casino level, and then at the state level. Um, And if you don't see a potential for corruption with that kind of a patchwork, you're not looking hard enough.
1: So Kavita, the, the one thing there, I mean, obviously, this is the, uh, you know, this is the doomsday sort of scare scenario for, for the entire NCAA. I, again, I my instinct would be that if I had to predict if this happens, and I'm not saying it's will, I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with Jane on this, that, that a major gambling scandal will happen, obviously, the prospect could. I don't think it's going to be at a major school, like in Alabama or something like that. I think there are a lot of safeguards in place. Um, not to mention that schools at that level, like you're really talking a lot of, pros and, and and it's a little different but you know what about some lower level division one school that's you know not a money maker and you know might play to three thousand fans on a given day those games get bet on just like the big boys get get bet on so if anything's gonna happen that's I, that my instinct would be that's where it is but i don't know what, what do you you know as someone who's um you know, like, like Jane and I have sort of now watched the last two years, this explosion of, uh, of sports gambling money and, 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 and daily fantasy and all that stuff. Uh, how plausible is Jane's scenario for you?
2: I mean, I think it's pretty plausible. I'll say, I'll say this as somebody who, like, I remember when we first started to talk about the legalization of sports betting in earnest, probably five or six years ago, and I was still working at Bloomberg. Um, and you know, I, I, I did a South by Southwest panel with some betting experts and a guy from uh, one of the major anti-corruption units in the UK. And I think that we just have to look at the UK and how sports betting, which has been legal over there and in Ireland for many, many years, how how corruption is a huge problem over there. And what they're doing in the UK is they're they're trying to ramp up a campaign. Obviously, this is, you know, something that the government is looking at and trying to regulate, but they're also trying to get better to regulate themselves and that just never works like come on like we we have so many instances not just in sports but in like all kinds of aspects of corporate America where you know you can't regulate like industries can't regulate themselves and that's ridiculous um, but One of the things that a lot of us were calling for when we kind of saw the writing on the wall that betting was going to sports betting was going to become legalized in the United States was that there was already all of this underground money that was not being regulated. So let's bring it above ground and let's regulate it. Well, one of those things has happened. (laughs) All of that money has now been brought above ground and has been infused with billions of more dollars of, of cash. And there's no regulation really and and so it is kind of the wild west and i know we're going to talk about nil rights as well which is also another wild west but You know, when you have like those two things were supposed to come hand in hand. And I think that we've just rushed to this um, to this place where I would be surprised if there isn't a major scandal in the next couple of years, maybe not in the next couple of months, but certainly in the next couple of years. And it's, you know, like I said, because of how much money is in there with no like real proper regulation. And then you also have because of the amount of money that you're talking about, you have gambling companies getting in bed with media companies. You have gambling companies buying media companies. Companies, which is a really big problem um, when you're talking about the separation of church and state, and and obviously like signing deals with leagues that now also have a financial stake in um, the viability and the health of the betting industry. Um, so there's just there's so many conflicts here. There's so many competing interests that well interests that compete with regulation and compete with doing this the right way. That I would be surprised if there wasn't a corruption scandal. I do tend to agree with you, Richard, though, that I think some of the bigger schools not only have safeguards in place, but they're still able to kind of sell that that lie to most players that you got a shot at the NFL or you have a shot at the at the NBA. Whereas, you know, a smaller division one school or even you know i would go to the high school ranks because people are betting on everything right and there are certainly high school teams high school football teams that operate as division one college teams and that's where i think we're, we're gonna start seeing a lot of you know the the kind of unsavory actors come out of the woodwork
1: Jane, you're <laughs> go ahead
2: Please.
3: Uh, I was just going to say, you know, you, we had what a year and a half ago. Time is meaningless now, but I think it was about a year and a half ago where Roger Goodell and the NFL sent a letter to Congress, which was basically like, please regulate gambling. <laughs> you guys, can you, put, can you get it together to do that? And of course, the answer is firm no. Um, so we're not going to see any sort of federal uh, regulation coming out anytime soon. And I, and I, like you, Kavitha, when this whole thing got started, when PAFSA was overturned three years ago, uh, I spoke to a couple of European regulators and one of them said to me, he said, you know, you have this whole class of unpaid players in the in NCAA athletes. And You know, he said, you all take it for granted that when something odd happens at the end of a game, a drop ball, et cetera, that um that it's actual, that it's that it's a genuine game action. It's not somebody throwing something. He said, you know, that's a real gift and you're taking it for granted because it may not always be that way. And um, and I do think that we are gonna see something happen in the next year, Richard. And I bet if it's if we don't actually see it in the papers or on TV. It's because the those those interests are not covering this in that way. There's not investigative reporting coming from people who have broadcast rights when it comes to, you know, dirty money and um, and lack of regulation and and issues that come along with gambling. And that's because everything's underwritten by Caesars.
1: Yeah, I would not uh, count on the uh, networks that have relationships to to broadcast games to be the ones to ultimately report on this. I think that comes from outside. Uh, Jane, your um, your second one was about uh, the sort of references before, but name, image, likeness, uh, NIL, and how you think market creativity is going to force the NCAA to completely reevaluate their revenue structure. So what do you think happens if you sort of expand that down the road?
3: Well, I just, you know, I think there is obviously the market is so much more creative than, than the NCAA is. Uh, I don't think that the NCAA could have anticipated, you know, the offensive lines of different teams getting deals or some of the deals that have come out um, for women and how strong the market has been for women in college sports. Um, you know, the WWE just signed 15 athletes to NIL deals. You have Steph Curry doing something where it's kind of like an internship mentorship type deal. You know, I mean, there are all of these different things that are being structured comp- completely differently. Um, and, you know, the NCAA isn't leading on this. They kind of, you know, backed into it in July of this year after 13 state laws went into effect, or they came out like a couple days before and were like, okay, NIL okay. And the only reason they did that is because they had member schools complaining about the competitive advantage that the state's schools from NIL- states would have. And um, so I I think you're just, and now you have the NCAA just announcing that they're investigating two deals for, to be kind of like, you know, pay to play schemes. Uh, And I think, (laughs) I just, am like, you know, how late to the game are they on this? And I just cannot imagine. And think of what we've seen in the first couple of months of NIL and just think about how it could, how it could be in the next year. I mean, really like you know, I'll use a term that refers to our last one, which is all bets are off. Um, I just, I just think it could be, um, I think you're going to see a lot of creativity in the, I think the NCAA is going to get left in the dirt on this one.
1: Kavitha?
2: Yeah. I mean, one, one of my fears here, and I will caveat this by saying that this, like if, if we were having this interview in a month, I wouldn't be, I would have to recuse myself from talking about this particular topic. Um, but one of my major fears Ever since Nil has has gone into effect, and I've long been on the record as, you know, for athlete compensation in whatever form we can figure it out. Um, And like Nil rights is like the very baseline for that. You should be able to sign an autograph for money. Um, But my fear is that we go from one form of exploitation to another. <laughs> and and I think there are a lot of bad actors there. There are a lot of shady agents, quote unquote, not established agents, but like some of the shady ones who are kind of trying to slither in here. And a lot, I mean, listen, just as, you know, to my to my work email, I get five pitches a day from people claiming to be nil rights experts. There is no such thing as a nil rights expert right now. You are, you are making it up as you go along. And I think that we have a lot of kids who can who who could fall into the trap of putting their trust in people who don't actually know what's going on. There's not a ton of transparency here. The only deals that we know of are the ones that are being publicized, right? Um but I'm thinking about, you know, the lower level athlete who's getting like a $10,000 maybe deal. And most of the deals that we that we don't hear about, most of the deals that we actually that are, are being made are in kind deals. They're getting paid in food, right? Like that's actually what's happening right now. So I do worry that this is opening up a whole other avenue for exploitation of these kids who might believe that they have Millions of dollars in endorsement deals in their future and they really only have the one or two that they're going to sign in college. Now that being said, I mean, as we started recording this, Nike just announced that they were signing their first nil rights deal with a women's soccer player at UCLA. So I think that there's, there's, I mean, that's quite incredible, right? Gatorade just signed Paige over at UConn, like there is an equalizing factor here where some of these endorsement dollars, a lot of these endorsement dollars are going to women's sports. And the women athletes in college. Um, you know, always had fewer professional avenues anyway, but now this is going to kind of close the gap in income and earning potential, which I think is really important. Um, but yeah, the fact the the fact that they're like just like gambling, right? We instituted this whole we opened this whole other world with no idea how to operate it, and this this is just going to cause a lot of problems down the road if we don't get if we don't tighten what the rules are, if we don't have a lot more transparency into what's happening here, um, and the NCAA obviously needs to have a role in this, but I do think that, I mean, a lot of the conversations I'm having with people when it comes to nil, Um, You know, go back to the Supreme Court ruling over the summer that had nothing to do with nil rights, but everyone figured it had some kind of implication on it, where Justice Kavanaugh wrote in his concurrent opinion, very strongly, basically undercutting this idea of an NCAA cartel. And I think the interesting thing that we're going to see is more and more people have been asking me, is the NCAA necessary? And obviously, I think a lot of us would like to see the entire system blown up and, and started from scratch. But But if we do blow up the NCAA, what does that mean for this whole Wild West that we've now opened up? And that's a question that I have.
1: Kavitha, I want to go to your next one, um, which I totally happen to agree with and uh, wrote about recently with uh, my colleague Jordan Bianchi at The Athletic. Um, F1 continuing to balloon in the United States, probably with an expanded broadcast streaming deal, the, uh, the F1 rights deal. Uh, that ESPN has is up in the summer of 2022. Um, you know, Drive to Survive has um, been a massive success for Netflix. It's caused a lot of casual sports fans to check out F1. Um, it has its challenges because it's still a, at the end of the day, it's still a Sunday morning event for people in the United States. So you're always going to have a limited audience there. But I, but I'm with you. I mean, they're they've captured like something. Um, in the American consciousness. And obviously the Netflix series has been the turbo engine to do that. So yeah, I I like, I think that's, you know, I don't know what the dollar number is going to be, but it's very clear that there's the the market for F1 interest in the United States has never been like this. And there's probably going to be in a, maybe a second, there's going to be a second race. There might be a third race down the road in the US. So I thought that was interesting. And I happen to agree with you as something to look at in 2022.
2: I mean, this moment for F1 in the United States reminds me of five or six years ago when NBC signed all of those Premier League games, right? Yeah. Like, and we were like, "When is the biggest sport in the world going to be a big sport in in America?" And obviously, we haven't gotten that to that level yet. But this feels like a very similar thing, where you know, outside of the U.S., Formula One is huge. It's gigantic, and it's gigantic not just in Europe. It's gigantic in Asia, obviously, and in the Middle East. And there's a lot of money to be made there. Um, and and I just like listen. This last this. Last Sunday's race, um, you know, with the the Max Lewis Hamilton controversy. I mean, my entire Twitter timeline was blowing up about this. Every single group chat that I'm on was blowing up about this, and I'm just like, when did everyone become an F1 fan? And it really is Netflix. Like, I mean, not to not to sound flippant, but that Netflix series really was what turned on an entire potentially generation of sports fans. Into F1, and I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you know NASCAR motorsports in this country are long seen as this kind of vestige of the South, um, you know, this this very regional, very like specific to where you are from kind of sport. Very obviously, like with a lot of like racial implications and and um, and racist implications, frankly. Um, and like the the joke is, well, who wants to just watch five hours of someone turning left? But F1 is way more interesting than that. So if you have any kind of inclination, Nation to be into motorsports. F1 is going to be where you're going to go if you just watch these two types of sports side by side. And I'll also say this as an anti-car urbanist who cannot drive, that America as a country is obsessed with cars. So it is wild that the rest of the country, even in place, you know, in, in liberal blue LA, where the car is king, that F1 is not bigger. So I just see such growth potential here. I think that ESPN is going to put a lot of money into retaining those rights or renewing those rights. And if not, someone else will. Um, but I just, I saw such, such fervor for this crazy controversy. Now, I will also say that, um, a lot of people that I know who have been watching this sport actually in the U.S. for 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 quite a few years also think that F1, like UEFA, um, needs to clean up some shit in their in their backyard because you know there there's a lot of thought that some of the stuff like what we saw on Sunday um, is 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 geared to to creating exciting races and controversy and that might not fly to the same level in the U S that it does in Europe.
1: Yeah. The one thing I would say, uh, Kavitha, that was actually, I mean, uh, uh, you made a lot of interesting points. I happen to be a NASCAR. Like I think NASCAR is an interesting sport. And while, um, I don't know, maybe I'm showing my American snobbery here. I, I I, like, I, I actually prefer watching it more than I do F1, but I think some of that is just because, I'm more used to NASCAR and I sort of have grown up more with it and I've seen it. And, um, I think the race thing is more interesting. Like, I don't know. It's just F1 feels like, uh, Miniature go-karts to me. No offense to the F1 people. But yeah, like that, that obviously that Netflix series with all the personalities and stuff, it makes it like, you know, you're like watching Secession in some way and like on the track. So I get it. Like they've, that they have been genius and NASCAR doesn't have anything like that, even though NASCAR has more, you know, obviously a much bigger audience, uh, Than F one at this time. All right, Jane. I'm not going to ask you to talk about F one. I'm going to get to what you uh, sort of said here, and that is um, women's sports finally get their due. Obviously, the three of us are big supporters of uh, women's sports. We've all covered them uh, throughout our careers. Um, So I guess I would just ask you, like, I mean, I don't doubt that there's going to be an increase um as there has been i think over the last couple of years of interest and you know we see like the ncaa uh women's final four those numbers are going up and um you know women's softball is going up nwsl had a good year but like i guess i would ask you like what what, like you you said finally get their due and i don't know I'm, I'm still a little bit of a skeptic here because like i guess i would ask you what is that in your mind what's get their due finally mean like like financially get their due uh publicity wise get there do how do you see that?
3: Well I think the monetization when it comes to Nil is a, a big part of the what I was pointing to with that. When you have so many uh, women's players and teams kind of being singled out by companies as their first and their initial um, you know brand deal when it comes to Nil, I think that says a lot. There are two things with that. Uh, one is that there is a bit of a halo effect. So if you you know if you're Nike and you give your you know your first deal goes to you know some quarterback of an SEC team that sends a pretty distinct message that the the rich will get richer, um, but when you make that deal with a with a woman um, in a co- on a college team you make. You make an inherent argument for equity. And I think that that's what a lot of these companies are doing. And I think it's actually a message that's being sent about uh, priorities and changing priorities um, and shifting attention. Um, So I don't don't believe that ESPN is going to figure it out or start a show about women's sports or. Um, you know, or put more energy into making sure that Stephen A. Smith is talking about women's teams and games on first take. I don't think that's going to happen. But what I do see um, are women's teams and leagues going backdoor and that stuff, doing an end around. And, you know, you see just women's sports as an entity that's starting up and making a big push. You see women investing in women's teams. I think what women have done is stopped waiting to get their turn based on number of people who are watching uh, the games and how uh, popular the athletes are. If the U.S. Women's National Team can't get equal pay, then, you know, going through the front door isn't going to work. And so I think what's happening is that there are now creative ways where women and women's sports are going about trying to get paid um, and capitalize on their popularity on social media in a way that is just never going to happen when you have these entities where the pay model, the advertising model is really skewed toward a male audience. Um, And I just don't think that's going to change. So it's now, okay, so how are we getting around that? And I think, you know, women's
2: sports and athletes are starting to figure that out. Kavitha. Yeah. I mean, I, one, one, a lot of things that Jane said really stuck out to me, but one thing is something that I've been thinking about for years. And it's the idea that when, When these brands like the Nikes that we just talked about signing uh, a women's soccer player at UCLA for their first nil rights deal, um, when these brands are signing women's athletes, women athletes um, to these endorsement deals in college or beyond, you know, That really, that reflects public sentiment. That reflects where the market really is. And I'm usually not, you know, I don't say that for everything. But as as I know, you know, I I worked for Nielsen Sports for years when I was in college, and I, I just remember so many times having meetings with pe- with marketing directors at major you know, beer companies and what have you and being like, you are leaving money on the table by ignoring women fans and by ignoring women's sports. And the thing that I have learned over the years is that the people who make those decisions in those particular positions are not forward-looking. They reflect what they where they believe the current status of things are. And I said this in the context of last year when brands started to jump on the Black Lives Matter train, it wasn't because they suddenly believed Black Lives Matter or because they felt a corporate responsibility to do so. It's because they saw that the people who were buying their products and watching their sp- their channels wanted that. They agreed with that messaging. And what these brands did reflected that. So when brands start to sign women athletes, it's not, it's not that they're looking toward where things will be. It's that they're looking at where things are right now, which is very, very encouraging to where things will be in a year or five years. And when you can get such like, Small C conservative people as marketing directors to jump on women's sports and women's athletes. That really tells you a lot about how much growth there's already been and how much growth there there has to be. Um, I will also say that, I mean, the WNBA is just one of the best run leagues that we have. I think the NBA is, is one as well. But. But it it was really discouraging to see all of the shit hit the fan with the NWSL because all of us were rooting for this to be one of those premier like look look at how women can run shit better and, and, and run things differently, kind of things. And now hopefully with a with a new guard they can. But when you look at, you know, the major North American leagues or even, you know, a bunch of a bunch of my friends and I were talking about some issues at F1 and at UEFA and whatever, um, It really can be the women run leagues that are that are going to clean up our our sports atmosphere, you know, and at FIFA, it was a woman kind of anti-corruption expert who tried to blow the whistle on everything that was happening over there. So I do think that there is there is so much there's so much more. There are so many more places to go to, to Jane's point of not just going through the front door, but finding all of these other avenues. And, you know, and the idea that I think this this. The, the next couple of generations that have grown up with social media as an integral part of, of these athletes brands um, are also have also grown up without the same kind of separation between men and women's athletes that you and I have grown up with. And I think that that from a psychological and social perspective also makes
3: it. I just want to point out also that we did some, we did some polling at Marist and, um, 56% of sports fans want to see more women um, in more women sports coverage, number one, but also more women in um, prominent roles as coaches and managers in professional leagues. And I think that speaks to a lot. But if you break those numbers down by demographics... Um, Sports fans under 30, it's like 68, 69%. So if you are looking forward, like you're saying, Kavitha, and you're looking at what is the future, I mean, the future is equity. The future is equity and paying attention to women's sports. Um, And so I really do think you're right. Like, that's why all of these brands are suddenly aligning. You know, that's why Victoria's Secret calls up Megan Rapinoe and is like, hey, you want to wear some bras? You know, like the the future is with women's sports and it's the smart play right now. It's the smart bet. And I think that that is going to filter... Um, and put some pressure on coverage of women's sports more seriously.
1: And those are interesting numbers, uh, Jane, I appreciate you citing those. Also nice shout out for Maris for yourself. Listen, I,
2: I do this. They do great polling also. I just wanted really to say, I, you know, the
3: mayor's poll and I, we sit down and we have like conversations about what is it we want to know? What are future trends that we're interested in? And yeah, women's
1: that's cool. No, no, I mean yeah. like to be part of like a, like a respected, uh, polling organization is pretty cool to, or to at least have access to it. Arkavitha, your your um, your next one. Uh, I agree with this. Obviously, Amazon becoming more of an NFL presence. Um, they have obviously the exclusivity coming up on Thursday night next year. They're obviously going to hire a major play-by-play person and an analyst person. They're going to have all these additional ways to watch the game. The sort of the Hannah Storm Andrea Kramer version, and uh, you know, like watching a game with NFL players on Twitch and stuff like that. So, you know, the the I agree with you, but like sort of that's going to be a little self-fulfilling because next year, like in order to watch Thursday Night Football, unless you are in the market of the teams that are playing, you either have to have Prime or you can't watch it. So you're right about that on face.
2: Yeah. And I I probably should do a a full disclosure that I work with Andrea Kramer at HBO and she's phenomenal. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but yeah, I mean, listen, like, uh, I mean, Amazon is really, really like ramping up their their um their presence in this space right and i think that um you know they, they'll already pretty much have control they're negotiating a deal with like nfl network and red zone and i think the question is like if will they have a a play in Sunday ticket, which yep. I don't think they will, we'll but yep. um we'll we'll see that, right? But but it, it's really interesting to see that. And and we don't have a good example, except for Thursday night football, of a nationally televised streaming only sports event. And that's something that obviously is probably the future and that, you know, teams and entities have been trying to figure out a way to pivot to. Um so so yeah, I mean reversing this idea of like the local blackout is really interesting to me. But um I, I am a little bit Uh, concerned about Amazon's reach in everything that we have in our lives, including um, the Washington post and, and, and the NFL, obviously, but I, I just, I don't see that. I don't see them, um, tamping down on that. And also the NFL historically, I mean, everyone here knows this, the NFL has historically been so resistant to technology and so <laughs> resistant to alternate forms of viewing. I mean, the NFL didn't get onto YouTube until like five years ago or some shit like that. So um, like, I think it's its hard to say that the NFL needs anything when they're a $25 billion uh, company, but I think the NFL needs something like an Amazon to, to work out for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, the one thing with like, uh, I mean, ultimately, like you can almost argue it's already worked out just because given the money that Amazon's already floated to the NFL. But, um, you know, the 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 NFL will be the one league, I think, that really continues to place its programming on over-the-air uh, network television. It's certainly going to through this current deal. But even, I think, into the 2030s, I, like, that's the one league where I, I honestly think they're going to continue to sort of be closer to what it is like today and yesterday than, what it will be for all these other leagues, because they can afford it. Like they can afford to make that decision because they companies like NBC and a, and uh, CBS and Fox are still in a position to pay them, you know, billions and billions of dollars to make it worth. Now, what would be interesting, and then we'll move on to um, the next topic, uh, would just be like, if I don't know, I'm just making this up. but one day like Google or Netflix is like, okay, here's fifty billion dollars, and like we want everything, and we're just gonna stream every single game on our. Service. And then ultimately, like Netflix will force everybody who's an NFL fan to to get a subscription. But I don't know what that number would be. You know, one hundred billion dollars I'm just sort of making it up for what the you know, what what the NFL owners would be willing to do to change their whole model. Kavita it seems like you want to say something.
2: Well, I mean, we have been hearing this for a decade now that Google has wanted to get into the sports space, the live sports space. In I don't way.
1: see it, but yeah, interesting. I
2: don't, I don't see it, but if anybody has the money that they're <laughs> going to need to throw at it, it's Apple and, Goog- and yeah, Google, correct. right? So, um, and I, you know, if I think if they see what this does for Amazon, they're going to be even more motivated for it. But I also do wonder, like we've been hearing this for a decade, what's been the holdup? So,
1: all right, Jane, your last one. I mean, Jane, I, all these sort of philosophical questions. You, you can't give me. Like like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes is going to is going to throw for 50, 52 touchdowns. In is that this
3: podcast? Is
1: that- <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> so your is the reimagining of what the role of a coach will be. And, um, you know, that's interesting. I didn't know if you were sort of thinking about a professional coach, or a college coach, I definitely think that I could sort of I could sort of expand that or think about that when it comes to college for sure. Um but I was curious if you thought that would extend to the to the pros and if so I wonder sort of what you're thinking on that is.
3: Well I think there you know uh- Kavitha referenced um, a couple minutes ago the National Women's Soccer League and all of the issues that they've had with coaching, um, abusive coaching, um, and and I think it, it kind of I mean th- this is going along in a series we've had we've seen a couple of clips now where coaches have been you know have have almost have, have pushed. Um, athletes on the playing field in a way out of, out of anger. And I think that this brings up a couple, and, you know, you all, we all kind of grew up in the era of Bobby Knight and, and the things that he did to players. And, and thankfully, you know, his kind of coaching is no longer part um, of, of many places. But I do think we have, you know, coaching is such a hierarchical thing. And so, so often coaching is about teaching hierarchies. And when you're doing that, then you can you know, then, and if you're only, if, if anger is the only allowable emotion for a coach to display, then you're going to get a lot of angry displays. And I, and I think when we're talking about mental health, um, that that is going to force a change when it comes to these different kinds of coaching styles. And I think there are a couple of things at play here. What is coaching designed to do? Is it designed to win at all costs? Is it designed to get the best effort out of a particular player? Um, you know, is it a supportive thing? Is it something where you break a player down, which is certainly the language that we heard for many t- years that you have to break someone down in order to get them to completely listen to you, which is seems like a fairly destructive process and has been a destructive process. Um, you know, we have today the settlement coming out with USA Gymnastics, uh, where some, where, you know, some very brave gymnasts came out and talked about what happened to them at the hands of Larry Nasser, who's now sitting in jail. And part of that settlement is that they get a seat on the USA board, a survivor gets a seat on the USA gymnastics board and board of directors. And I think that is a huge thing because it means a voice for survivors, um, in the future of that organization. Um, so I, I think, you know, this comes along with athlete empowerment, uh, and I think it could ultimately have an effect on coaching styles. It may not come out and, um, show as much in a place like, uh, college football, where you have, uh, I think a, a revenue structure, which so advantages college coaches at the moment. But I think in other areas, we're going to start, um, seeing some more discussion about what is the role of a college coach or of a, of a coach generally. Um, and you know, and what, what can we expect? What kind of behaviors can we expect and who is that for?
1: Kavita, did you want to add to that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I- Everything that, that Jane just said, uh, is, is something that I that I thought about and that I agree with. And and I will also say that throughout the entirety of this discussion on on this podcast, in the back of my mind Some kind of coaching relationship has come up in all of these issues. Jane mentioned mental health. Obviously, mental health is is a huge has a huge overlap with with coaching practices because of the whole win at all costs, as she said, and and you know tough love or or tearing a player down, or you're not allowed to show emotion and that kind of thing. Um, And we've seen a, a complete. Evolution in the type of coaching. We now have the Steve Kerr's, you know, the the players' Pickerel. coach, quote unquote. You know, exactly, P. Care and 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 that that can be super effective on the court or on the field without having to completely tear down the mental health or the personality of of the players in question. And then when we talk about NIL rights, I mean. We're continuing to have conversations and the American like fan is finally getting to a place where they're recognizing how exploited college college athletes are. And now that's coming at a time when we've just seen so much coaching turnover in the middle of the college football season that fans themselves are asking the same questions that a lot of advocates and a lot of media have asked for years, which is why do we allow coaches this level of um? this level of fluidity and this level of freedom to move and all of that uh, and and pay them as much as we're paying them when we don't afford that same kind of ideal to to athlete to college athletes. And even then, when it doesn't come down to tangible things like like the freedom to move because there is a transfer, uh, transfer portal now and and getting paid because now there are nil rights in in some way. Um, it still comes down to a well, you're not being loyal enough to the team. Coaches are not expected to have that same loyalty, so we're having those conversations there too. So I think that the the not the importance. But the way that a coach is at the top of that hierarchy is shifting. And I think that does come with, as James said, athlete empowerment. And that's just an overarching thing that we've seen in the last two years um, with athletes being able to find their voice, but also realizing that they are the product, like they are the thing that everybody is actually paying to to watch Um, and that there should be a power that comes with that. That doesn't mean, you know, you defy your coach at all at all cost or, or whatever. But that does mean that there has to be a different level of relationship and we do have to reevaluate what um what that relationship and exactly what that power dynamic is supposed and to college
3: work. players being able to transfer now like they can i think means means something to, it means you don't have to put up with four years of bullshit you know if it's if you're a good enough player and you can get out of there i mean that that changes the game also
1: last one uh and that's kavitha talking um or 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 mentioning to me, and I agree with her a thousand percent on this one, league is going to have to deal with the China question. And, um, the NBA is obviously seen this reality, um, significantly, um, and all leagues or any league that has any kind of connection to China, uh, is going to have to sort of address this. The first one coming up, it's not really a league of but NBC obviously is broadcasting the Beijing Olympics. um, historically they always try to avoid any kind of discussion on uh, uh politics authoritarianism in their coverage they want you basically to romanticize the olympics which you know in some ways we all do this one feels like it's impossible whether it's peng Shua, whether it's um uh di- diplomatic boycott for multiple countries now it's a hard one to avoid and they'll probably punt it to nbc news but i'm with you uh, i think uh, i think in 2022 it's going to be very hard, particularly in an Olympic year, for all these sports leagues that have business with China to sort of put their head in the sand here.
2: Yeah, I mean, just starting with NBC, I will say that I have, and and I, I understand that there's, there's separate entities within the same company, but I have been very surprised at how much MSNBC and NBC News has had me on to talk about China, frankly. Um, I don't know if I expected that. and I think SNL a couple of weeks ago also made a joke on Weekend Update where they were like, well, you know, our parent company is hosting the Olympics, then we're allowed, but, but they're still allowing us to tell these jokes. And then they cut to uh, uh, a "We'll be right back" screen. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, you know, but but it is a it is a really big thing. You know, you have it, it, an entire news organization within NBC that is doggedly covering the human rights abuses in in China, and you have very quietly not just um, reporters at NBC Sports or at NBC, but rep- if you talk to any sports reporter who has been assigned the Olympics, everyone. Is very worried about what the actual climate is going to be like when they get there. Are there are there, you know, how how are their internet connections going to be monitored? Are they going to be able to actually send dispatches from Beijing? So that is a really big thing. But, you know, I think one of the things that uh, we've all been pleasantly surprised to see was how strong the WTA and like the WTA's yeah. response to the Peng Shua um, situation has been. And and you could argue, I mean, obviously the NBA, and I, I will caveat all this also by saying that I'm extremely uncomfortable with the way that Inez Cantor freedom is being used in this entire conversation or is allowing himself to be used, I should probably say. Um, But, uh, you know, the WTA, you could argue, is not just the, has not just been the strongest sports entity to speak up and actually like do something actionable against what they are seeing happening in China. They are are probably the company in America that hasn't had the strongest response to this, which is quite a thing to say when you think about how important, and I've said this on quite a few shows now how important sports are to China's image of itself in the global landscape and how important sports have been to their strategy of projecting themselves um, in in the way that they want to project themselves. So, I mean, if the WTA can do it, I have to believe that there's more... you know, there's more at stake. There's a higher risk, risk, and there's also a higher reward. But there's also more of a safety net for a league like the NBA. To I'm not saying pull all of your operations out of China, because obviously I don't think that's possible. But there has to be some kind of model going forward for how other entities can follow, at least encourage or in kind what uh, what the WTA did. Now that being said, the ITF, like if we are just staying within tennis, the ITF is completely waffled on this issue as well. And obviously the IOC. Has um has held these very uh, questionable kind of maybe PR campaigns um, about having talked to Peng Shua. So, um, but yeah, I think that this is just something that's not going to go away. And there's, you know, it's just been really interesting to see how, on the one hand, the China question is being used as a political football. On the other hand, um, I think that that means that there's pressure from all sides now, and it's not going to go away.
1: Jane, I'll give you the final word.
2: Uh, this is such an interesting topic. I, I think part of you know,
3: I've been really disappointed in the ATP, the NBA and other companies, uh, you know, Apple, that have not pushed the issue on this. I think the WTA was able to because it was founded by Billie Jean King uh, and other women's players in the spirit of equity and in the spirit of, you know, putting women first. And that, you know, as a league that with that as its bedrock principle, it could not put uh, financial commitments and financial possibilities above human rights. And, you know, and I, I, the reason that, and it just goes to show you that isn't a given that, you know, in this society, we really do, we put money above. Um, and, I, and so that's, you know, been disappointing to realize. And, and especially with the, the IOC being willing to be used like this, you know, when you are wondering whether or not someone has autonomy like Peng Shui, um, to have two video conferences when you are in your headquartered in Beijing which is where she lives like go to her house
2: you know ha- meet her in a place yeah how have they not sent anybody over there when they still can't establish independent communication with her i just uh, this to me is
3: is the, the 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 question the only the only question is that you know you have to you know the fact that the that the head of the aioc has not walked over to her or made that a a an absolute um, prerequisite before the Olympics can go forward is shameful. I mean, they've just behaved so shamefully in this, um, but agreed. I think it's, you know, and it's not just this, it's, it's World Cup in Qatar. It's where are these um, international events going to be held going forward? You know, this is a huge question now, and it really does put it. I think, you know, there have been places like the IOC, very spotty record on, you know, uh, corruption in, the, in recent years and you have them being willing to really put the Olympics anywhere as long as you get the highest bidder. And you've had you have you know, have governments um, leaders who are certainly willing to take advantage of that um, you know going back to you know Mussolini and, and Hitler unfortunately in a tradition of using the Olympics for po- political gain. Um, and I think, you know, you have to look now and say, what what ethically are the responsibilities going forward if we're going to have these events internationally? Um, and, you know, and this this forces that point. It's uh, it's an interesting time. And and so far, no one has had the stomach for this.
1: Yeah, you can be waiting a long time for the IOC to show some uh, moral leadership here.
3: James. But the
2: IOC also touts itself as a marker of democracy Correct. and of upholding right. human rights. And you know, in twenty twelve, my first ever professional piece was about women in the Olympics, because it twenty twelve in London was the first year that Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Brunei sent a woman, and the IOC made a really big deal about that because they basically were forced to force the hands of those countries to do so. So if you're if you're going to tout that as part of your international image and as part of your bona fides and all of that, then you also have to really turn around and, and take some responsibility when this is staring you in the face
1: right i can tell myself as a hemsworth brother it doesn't mean i am one though <laughs> it's, uh, like yeah i happen to agree with you but it's it's we will be waiting a long time for the ioc on that all right kavita davidson check her work out on hbo's real sports Jamie mcmanus uh director of maris center for sports communication read her work on deadspin uh it's always great to catch up with you that was too. a fun half hour I wish you uh, <laughs>
2: yeah trust me it was longer than that
1: uh <laughs> your part, Jay, might have been happening. uh happy holidays to both of you uh, two of my favorites and uh and uh you'll definitely be back on in 2022 and uh you know maybe we'll do this at the end of uh we'll do this december 2022 and we'll see how uh what we said today uh pans out or does not pan out but thanks for joining there me on go. the sports media podcast thanks thanks for having me All right. As I said at the top, Jesse Isinger is a senior editor and reporter at ProPublica. In April 2011, he and a colleague won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting for a series of stories on questionable Wall Street practices that helped make the financial crisis the worst since the Great Depression, so what an exciting podcast! We have two We have we have a total of one Pulitzer Prize winner on this podcast, and it does not me. Jesse is the author of uh, the Chicken Shit Club: Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives, and um, he is here today for the purposes of his December seventh piece with Jeff Ersthausen, hopefully I pronounced that right, that was titled, These Real Estate and Oil Tycoons Avoided Paying Taxes for Years. And one of those tycoons is Miami Dolphins and Michigan benefactor Stephen Ross. Uh, Jesse, it's a long introduction, but um, you folks at ProPublica really do incredible invaluable work. And, uh, and I'm really pleased that you joined me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
0: Well, thanks for having me. I love a long introduction, you know, sort of filibusters, uh, less time for me to have to uh, come up with pithy things to say. All right. So here's where
1: I want to start with. It's a little bit of a philosophical question, and then I'll get into like sort of how you, how one reports this out. But, you know, looking at your, you know, looking at your sort of your bio, your CV, certainly recently, you write a lot about wealthy people trying to find ways to avoid paying their fair share. And this might make one a cynic. Are are you a cynic?
0: Uh, you know, I I don't think you can be cynical in this business, you know, investigative reporting. I I kind of ply a beat that I think of as elite impunity, how uh, the wealthy get away with things. I wrote a book about how they get away with crimes and don't get prosecuted, and now I'm writing a book on tax evasion. And you know, people at ProPublica just wake up in the morning pissed off, and I still have that outrage factor, um, and so. You know, even when you are uh, crying into the wind, um, I feel like it—it's worthy to uh, make wealthy and powerful people a little bit upset. If I can—if I can piss them off a little bit, um, I, I sleep better at night.
1: Nice, sir. Just start your day with the Clash, and you'll be in good shape there. Um, okay, so. You, you wrote in your piece that, um, I'm sort of quoting here, Stephen Ross is the second wealthiest real estate titan in America. His assets included a penthouse apartment overlooking Central Park and the Miami Dolphins football team. You wrote from 2008 to 2017, he reported even more, nearly $2 billion in losses. And because he reported negative income, he didn't pay a nickel in federal income taxes over those 10 years. Understanding that you're writing here specifically about Stephen Ross, how widespread, in your opinion, um, are these income tax avoiders among the ulti, uh, among the ultra-wealthy sports owners?
0: Yeah. So uh, there are two things going on with um, Ross, and one is specific to sports owners, and one is uh, mainly about his real estate business. And they're both kind of upside-down worlds where the reality, the real world, Um, is prosperous and you can show losses for tax purposes. So things are going up in value and producing income in the real world. And for taxes, you can show losses. And you do this through this technique called depreciation. Um, And what happens is you Buy a building. And so, real estate, commercial real estate people, they buy big buildings. And then all of a sudden, you're allowed to start taking money off the table like it's producing losses for your tax purposes. And it's wiping out your income and producing losses. And Stephen Ross is literally telling the IRS that he's losing hundreds of millions of dollars, $400 million in a given year. Um, but what's actually happening is those buildings are not only producing a lot of rental income but they're also appreciating in value they're not depreciating depreciating at all this is extremely common in commercial real estate so we see this with Donald Trump, some of you may have heard of him, and Charles Kushner, the father of Jared Kushner, um, and um, this guy who owns the most real estate in Silicon Valley, Jay Paul, and the list goes on and on. In fact, we found 18 billionaires who reported negative income and got COVID stimulus checks because they were reporting negative income to the IRS. So this is pretty common among the ultra wealthy. The sports owners have their own special tax dodge that we can get into in a bit
1: yeah we will and we'll talk about balmer in a second so before we do that though like um you know we talk a lot on this uh, on this podcast about process because i have a lot of obviously well-known people in the sports media world and and those who listen to this podcast are very interested in just you know how they go about their preparation if you're a broadcaster what do you do for your research how do you prepare your broadcast boards you know what's your sort of process when you're in game what's your process when you're in production meetings? So without revealing sourcing, you know, my sense is the kind of reporting you do is not easy. There, you have to figure out how to get documents, I imagine. You have to be uh, laborious in terms of um, what you're looking at um, financially, numerically, and then obviously at a certain point, you have to talk to human beings and sourcing. So how do you go about doing that? Like what, without, again, without revealing sourcing, what is the process for this kind of reporting?
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty complex um, and very time-consuming. And I'll give you a sense of this specific story, which is we obtained the tax records of the wealthiest Americans. We're talking the ultra-wealthy, the 1% to the 1%. We're not talking about waiters um, or uh, plumbers, and we're not even talking about doctors or lawyers or even investment bankers. We are talking about really the billionaire class. Um, and we we got that, and we are not talking about when we got it or how we got it or who the source or sources are because we need to protect them. But the first thing we do when you get this giant kind data drop or document dump is that you have to sift through it to figure out if it's real or not um, and authenticate it. And that took uh, my colleagues, Jeff Ernsthausen and Paul Keel and I many months um, to sift through to figure out whether this was true. Um, and then we you have to figure out whether it's newsworthy because just because something is uh, you know, exciting and um, you, uh, you know, it's, you, you've gotten it in clandestine ways. Um, now, of course, we don't solicit material that can be illegally obtained, but we do receive material that's been illegally gotten. And we sift through it to figure out whether it's newsworthy, whether it's in the public interest. And so we ended up, coming up with stories. uh, And that took many months too. figuring out what are the stories and whether this is authentic. And we did figure out it was authentic. And then we decided, like, what's in the public interest? Well, the first story we wrote is about how ultra wealthy people avoid income tax because they avoid income. And that's kind of counterintuitive, because You and I work for a living, and we get a W-2, and our taxes get taken out of it, and we need a salary and wages to live. The ultra-wealthy basically treat income as a voluntary thing. And so what we found is Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, who have of vied for the richest man in the world um, in recent months, those guys literally paid zero in income taxes in recent years, and Michael Bloomberg paid zero in income tax, and George Soros paid zero in income tax. And what you can do if you're ultra-wealthy is control the time and place and choosing of your income, and sometimes you just don't take income. They don't take salary. They don't take wages, um, and they can avoid taxes that way. So that was the first big story and the first big revelation, um, that they have all this wealth and accumulate this wealth, and they don't take income, so they don't pay taxes. And instead, what they do to fund their lifestyles is they borrow against it, and that's tax-free. Um, and so we have sifted through this whole thing. The next one of the next stories by uh, Robert Federici and Justin Elliot um, was about sports owners taking depreciation on their sports team so that LeBron James, who gets paid in salary like you, like me, they uh, he pays a really high tax rate. We've got his. Data we've got his income we've got his taxes. Um, LeBron pays 35%, which is a pretty high tax rate. Steve Ballmer, um, who is an owner and former Microsoft um, uh, executive, he's only paying 12% um, because he's got he's got in part he's able to write off his team. Um, And so uh, things that, um, you know, so essentially, if you are ultra wealthy, the world of tax avoidance, and I should emphasize, this is all legal. This is the system that we have and the system that we've chosen. The world of tax avoidance opens up to the ultra wealthy in ways that it just simply doesn't for not only for average people like you and me, but for even the LeBrons of the world.
1: So okay, so let's 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 sort of focus on the sports thing for a second, you know, because I read that piece which was really fascinating and again if you're a if you're a sports fan and you read the propublica piece about how sports owners use their teams to avoid millions in taxes, I just I don't know how you wouldn't be just infuriated by what um what these sports owners are doing because you know, you and me, you know, we have to pay taxes, the IRS may audit us, but these guys are able to use legal loopholes to avoid that. So my question for you, and again I don't cover this, Um, so this would be illogical to me, but maybe I'm wrong. My thought would be that Congress or some kind of congressional oversight could, could sort of be in play here where they would change the law to seemingly make it more equitable for society. But then I imagine you get into lobbyists who are probably paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to make sure that Congress does not do this for the ultra wealthy. But it, would it be as simple as changing, um, Changing the law so that the ultra wealthy, and particularly the ultra wealthy sports owners should, fa- should pay the same kind of rate that a LeBron James does?
0: You could easily change a bunch of laws, um, and they're actually not particularly complex laws, um, and all of the ideas are available and floating around Congress, and generally get some support from Congress, and then um, get kiboshed uh, by a couple of senators here and there. So just recently, uh, Biden introduced a bunch of ambitious uh, new tax laws to changes to the tax code that would really target billionaires. And, um, And they got pushed back by a select handful of Democratic senators in this case because of course Democrats narrowly control the Senate um, and so lobbyists had to get to them and they succeeded in getting to Kirsten Cinema and to Joe Mansion and kind of rolling back those ambitions. Um, there's also an idea that we could tax billionaires on their wealth somehow. That's a less popular idea in Congress, although it actually is a very popular idea in among the American public. Um, And there are ways to do that. You could have a wealth tax like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have proposed. There's also a way to tax the Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos' is of the world on their appreciating stock on their assets. So what happens is Tesla goes up and Elon Musk becomes much, much richer. And then he borrows, literally borrows billions of dollars from the banks to fund his lifestyle. And instead of that, which is not taxable, what you could say is when Elon Musk's stock goes up, that's essentially like him getting income. And you could tax that um, and then, if it went down, you could give him a refund um, over ten years. But uh, generally, it goes up, and generally, he would be taxed. That's an idea. That's an idea that's floating around Congress, but not getting the kind of support that it needs to actually pass.
1: Here's the last one I have for you. And again, I, I appreciate you popping on today. Um, you know, in my world, you see a lot of times where um, professional sports owners will try to play on the emotions of a of a fan base and they they will pitch the importance of a sports uh, team culturally in the marketplace it clearly in my opinion in a way to basically get corporate welfare in a way to get um the public to 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 fund you know a new stadium or to fund something that sort of will benefit ultimately the team what What tends to happen a lot of times is that that cultural importance really does have leverage. And then obviously lawmakers, local municipal lawmakers within those markets will then ultimately sort of cut very favorable deals with sports owners to to sort of keep the team there to make that happen. I wonder, and again, this is much more philosophical uh, than even on your reporting. But do you have a sense as to why that sort of the public continues to allow this? It's a little better in recent time that, you know, there are some more private funding where these teams will pay for stuff themselves. But as a general rule, it, you know, you would think sort of logically the public would just be, you know, marching in the streets like saying, you know, we're not paying for this. Like we got to pay for more important things, schools and infrastructure and stuff. But all, many times the lore of a sports, a professional sports team wins the day and you see the public in some form end up paying for that product to remain in the in a city and ultimately the ownership obviously gets wealthier and the and the and the team gets more valuable why do you think that is is it just that sports the sports have that kind of draw because it logically we should be like in the streets saying we're not paying for
0: this. It's it's really extraordinary. The uh, owners are suckling at the teeth of uh, municipalities all over the country, um, and they are exactly on corporate welfare. And then they have got this additional tax benefit from owning the teams where they get to write off the players contracts. And yet the team is appreciating when you can treat it like it is depreciating. So um wh- I the the only answer I have um, is twofold. One is that there is this kind of outsized status for a major league city um, and uh citizens of these cities want to be have that status conferred upon them, um, and so they like it, and they feel very deprived and very hurt when, you know, the uh, cults leave Baltimore, um, or, you know, an entire generation of, of authors were spawned to work out their anxieties because the Brooklyn Dodgers left um, Brooklyn, um, you know, that's led to more great art than uh, almost anything, any uh, incident in American history, uh, Civil War. World War II combined. Um, So, you know, there is this uh, cultural status here. But I also think that it's a failure of imagination. It's a failure of politicians. Politicians are often um, lobbied by the owners uh, for these sweetheart deals. But You know, there could be eminent domain where the cities own the teams and you professionally manage them. And here I will put in a pitch for my team. (laughs) I'm from Wisconsin. Uh, The Green Bay Packers are municipally owned and an entirely successful franchise. So it completely uh, defeats the argument that only the owners can run competent sports teams. You know, I think the green Bay Packers have a fairly better record than say Dan Snyder um, or, you know, uh, Nick's owner, Jimmy Dolan, these, you know, these guys are abominations and the communities could do a better job often. And uh, but no one really even talks about that because we have a very narrowly defined um set of rules and conversation topics that we can have around sports ownership. Um, and this sort of never is really brought up by people. I'm glad you're bringing it up.
1: Jesse Eisenger is a uh, senior editor and reporter pro, pro Publica. Uh, he's the author of the chicken shit club. Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. You can head to the ProPublica site, obviously just type his name in and you'll see all his work. Again, I'm not just saying this because he's on the line. I, I cannot express enough how important ProPublica is in the media ecosystem. They're doing just like really just incredibly important and valuable work that makes us a healthier democracy. And my only hope is that that place gets funded. Um, certainly for a long, long time. Jesse, uh, I really appreciate you coming on today. And, uh, and please, continue, uh, please continue the great work that you and your colleagues are doing. Thanks so much today. That's very flattering. Thank you very you much. You got it. Thanks so much for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to my um, three guests for a uh, really interesting conversation. I hope, uh, hope everybody listening like that. Head to the archives, and there probably will be something that uh, you're interested in if you're interested in sports media. Prior to this podcast, we had a baseball writer roundtable with Britt Giroli and Jason Stark on uh, covering baseball during a work stoppage, and um, and the really uh, what's going to happen with um, access when it comes to baseball writers and their ability to talk to players, um, because it seems like that is starting to uh, you know, really get cut back, and that's not good for anybody. Prior to that, James Andrew Miller on the history of HBO and HBO Sports. He has a a new book out on the history of HBO. Rebecca Lowe, Mike Breen and Ian Eagle, Pam Oliver, Chris Jericho, Robert Griffin III, some of the recent guests on the Sports Media Podcast. Again, I know I say this every week, but it does have meaning. If you like this podcast, leave us a five-star review and a nice note. Um, It it really does have impact. I want to thank my producer, Patrick Antonetti. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. I want to wish everybody happy holidays. Um, You know, hopefully uh, you'll be safe, Um, you know, once again in the world. uh, We're going through a bit of a rough stretch, so I wish everybody nothing but uh, uh, the best of holidays, uh, no matter what you you celebrate or do not celebrate, and stay healthy. Thanks, obviously, for listening to this podcast. Maybe you'll find something during... uh, during the holidays uh, if you're a podcast person that you might uh, you know, might keep you company with and that, that'd be a very very cool thing. so again for patrick uh for everybody cadence 13 it's richard deitch we'll see you soon on the sports media podcast